Hello and welcome to Behind the Frontline podcast. The podcast that asks the very simple question, how can we change the world? I'm your host, Dr. Adil Khan. In this season, I will be chatting with expert guests to try and understand how COVID-19 impacts society in different ways. I hope to share the insights of these great minds with you and hope to inspire you to change the world. Have you ever heard a doctor say to a grieving family member, I'm sorry, but there's nothing more that we can do. It's usually said in the context of someone who is terminally ill and death is around the corner. My next guest on Behind the Frontline podcast seeks to completely remove this saying from medicine. Because in medicine, there's always something that can be done. And while it may be true that someone who is terminally ill may not recover from the illness, Palliative care, which is the specialized medical care for people living with a serious illness, offers much more to a person than just medication. Palliative care is about treating people and their family holistically. It's about empowering them to make informed decisions. And at its core, it's about restoring dignity. The COVID-19 pandemic has forced many people to come to terms with death of close family members and friends. On the previous episode in this podcast about COVID and mental health, we heard how one person lost 16 people due to COVID. What are the implications for palliative care during the COVID-19 pandemic? What can we learn from it moving forward? What are the great innovations that were created for palliative care during this time? These are the questions I'll put to my next guest, Dr. Clint Cubido. Dr. Cupido is an experienced specialist internal medicine physician at Victoria Hospital in Cape Town. He has a keen interest in palliative care and runs the palliative care unit at the hospital, affectionately named Abundant Life. The work he does to improve the quality of life and restore the dignity of the seriously ill and young community is inspiring. Dr. Cupido is changing the world. Clint, thanks for the time and welcome to Behind the Frontline podcast. Could you tell listeners a little bit more about yourself? Uh, so my name's uh, Clint Cupido. I'm a internal medicine physician. And uh, for people to understand simply what I do, I'm actually a hospitalist. So I am a doctor who works in a hospital and I see medical patients, in other words, all the patients that the surgeon doesn't want to operate on, uh, the elderly, the sick, uh, with heart attacks, ICU patients, and of over the last year, seeing lots and lots of COVID patients. Mm-hmm. So as a hospitalist, I have been based at Victoria Hospital for the last uh, 13 years, and as a senior consultant in the Department of Medicine now, I have been able to meet many, many young doctors, interns. Uh, I also have to mentor and train medical students, uh, fourth years, sixth years from UCT. And I've had the pleasure of working with many young doctors and interns from around the country over the last uh, many years. So I am really grateful for the invitation, Adil, and uh, I hope that you'll have some reasonable questions for me and don't make this interview too difficult. (laughs) Only difficult ones. Could you 
tell us very briefly about the organization that's linked to uh, yourself uh, called Abundant Life? First of all, Abundant Life Palliative Care is not actually an organization. Abundant Life Palliative Care is merely the name that we have given to a service that has been provided by the National Department of Health through myself and Sister Elizabeth Batu, and we are based at Victoria Hospital. And palliative care, first of all, is important to understand the term. And palliative care is really, it's almost like taking medicine back a hundred years. The original doctors were actually not very technologically advanced, Mm. And they never had all the amazing skills and uh, technology we have today. And, and they really came to see patients in their home. They came to advise, listen, hold the patient's hand, provide comfort, and empower the family to be able to look after the patient at home. And, you know, in the early 1900s, very few hospitals existed. Mm. And in fact, Victoria Hospital is only 133 years old, and it's the second oldest hospital in South Africa. Khrudeskir uh, Hospital only turned 80 years old the other day. Mm. So hospitals are quite new in terms of medical care. But over the last 50 years, many, many patients end up actually very sick, and then their family sends them to hospital. So no longer do patients actually die at home in the comfort of their family. Most patients in the last 20, 30 years have been dying in hospitals. And I'm not sure, Adil, what your feeling has been, but uh, if you think back to your own family members uh, over the last many years who've passed on, you know, you've got to ask yourself, where did they die? Mm. Or you actually had a family member die in, in your house. Mm. And so people dying at home is, is, is not normal yeah. anymore. Uh, and so palliative care is trying to assist the medical fraternity to recognize that patients are actually human beings, yeah. that uh, are not diseases, that they are mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, um, they come from families and these human beings are, are suffering and often tend to die in a hospital and you'd imagine that if you die in a hospital, you know, there's a lot of people around uh, because it's a hospital. But unfortunately, many people in the hospital still end up dying alone. So our aim and objective really is as a service with that, within Victoria Hospital, we are encouraging the change in the way doctors, nurses manage patients to actually embrace the principles of palliative care. And that is essentially to make an impeccable medical assessment of the patient. And then not to just focus on the disease, but also to focus on the symptoms that the patient's experiencing. So often the doctor is prescribing medication for the heart failure, but the patient's complaint is actually, I am short of breath. 
and the doctor doesn't know what medication to give for shortness of breath. Mm. Or, you know, a patient in heart failure is actually suffering with the fact that they're worried. They're worried that they're going to die or they're worried that they're not going to be able to provide care to their family if they're the breadwinner. Uh, they're not going to be there to see their children grow up. And nobody addresses, and there's actually no medication to address that worry. So palliative care allows us to identify and assess these biopsychosocial aspects, but really looking at symptoms, looking at the psychology of the patient, looking at the spiritual side of the patient, and incorporating that within the management of a patient. So really, in my opinion, actually just good general medicine. And I am not a big fan, actually, of boxing palliative care, because then when you box something, then every other doctor feels that they can refer the patient to that special unit. <laughs> but every single nurse and doctor in this country should be able to do this. At its core, though, it's about bringing dignity back to the patient. There is the disease on the one side, but then it's the person, the family, the community, everything else. That it's, it's about bringing dignity um, to that person at the end of life. I absolutely take your point, though, that we need dignity throughout medicine, not just when somebody is at the end of life. But this is a palliative care discussion. So we are going to uh, zoom in on that a little bit because I, I think there's, first of all, a little bit of misconception out there. And allow me to play a, a real devil's advocate for a moment. What would you say to people that say, you know, palliative care is for somebody that's terminal. They are, have limited time left. Why should we invest time and resources in them when we know that the life expectancy is limited? I think that's a lovely question. So let's actually look at what we currently do in terms of investing resources into people who are close to the end of their life. And unfortunately, the exact opposite of what you suggested is currently what's happening. So in the last year of life, more money is spent on the medical treatment of patients than you'd imagine. The majority in you know, places like America, where patients are actually, you know, everything is available. A patient who is 80 years old has access to dialysis, has access to an ICU bed. And I would say similarly in South Africa. In South Africa, in our private sector, very much equal to the kind of care that you get in America where if you have the financial resources and you have medical aid, then you basically can almost get about just about anything. And so the reality is, is that the majority, 90% of medical cost in a person's life, so over an entire lifetime, 90% of the total cost of that person's medical care occurs in the last year of their life. We are actually spending more money 
on people in their last year of life to achieve very little outcome. And we are then losing the aspect of the dignity. So when it comes to palliative care, we are actually going to save you money. We are not spending money, but our service cannot be absolutely free mm. because our service requires mainly human beings to be able to do this care. So it requires bedside counselors, it requires spiritual counselors, it requires a social worker, it requires a doctor who is actually willing to spend time with the patient. So it's not a five minute consultation. It's more like a 45 minute consultation. And so that cost, however, especially when given, if you're giving that care within a home setting, there's no cost for the hospital bed. There's no cost when you look at people who are spending six weeks in the ICU for their last six weeks of life. And, and Ariel, you in the private sector, maybe you can tell us what does an ICU bed cost a day? <laughs> Any idea? Too much to mention. Yeah, I mean, the average cost in South Africa is 30,000 Rand a day for a bed in the ICU. Yeah. So that's extremely expensive. And I must say, the devil's advocate here is telling me that uh, palliative care is definitely a lot cheaper and better. Yeah, I don't think that's the devil's advocate. That's the angel's advocate. Uh, but, but, but nonetheless, I, I think this is a good point then to bring listeners that may not be fully appreciative of what, first of all, palliative care actually does. Uh, and then just to highlight some of, some of the tenets. So first of all, if somebody has a reversible condition that needs investigation and treatment, that's not somebody that is appropriate to receive palliative care. That call is made uh, on an ad hoc basis, obviously, by the treating doctors. And, and with, with, a, with a fairly reasonable amount of accuracy, when it comes to a situation where clearly somebody is terminal, and uh, I, I would like you to talk listeners through an example of that, of a typical patient that you see, there comes a point where any further investigation and any further treatment may be deemed as unnecessary and certainly undignified if you are then encroaching on the person's last few years of life to only get you know, minimal increase in, in, in actual, actual life expectancy. I look after everybody. And so most people see palliative care in the form of hospice. And the majority of the patients seen by hospice either have cancer or have HIV. And I'm specifically looking after those patients, but I also look after every other patient, including patients who are dying from heart failure, kidney failure, from strokes, from any neurological problem. They may have conditions such as uh, lung failure, TB of the lungs, and recently we've been looking after many patients who have COVID. So maybe I'm going to take an example of the COVID patient. Please. Uh, and the COVID patient is actually a very important example because when a patient is diagnosed with COVID, every patient's an individual. And so our first aim and objective 
is to assess that individual patient. And currently we use what's called the priority score. And the priority score is a scoring mechanism that looks at the patient in totality. So it looks at the age of that patient. It looks at what that patient's functional state is. So when we talk about functional state, we're meaning, is that patient able, are they fit and well? Are they, you know, a normal young person who's up and going to work every day? Or is this somebody who's actually uh, elderly, has had a previous stroke, is bedbound, is unable to go to the bathroom and needs somebody to care for them all the time? So I'm going to choose that that latter patient. So, but I'm going to give you an example of a patient. So I've got a 40-year-old. So that's not an old patient. 40. And this patient has had a background history of being diabetic for many years. And unfortunately, uh, a year ago, she actually developed a ulcer on her leg, got gangrenous, and she had her leg amputated. And she subsequently developed kidney failure. And so she's 40 years old with kidney failure, and she was requiring a kidney transplant. And unfortunately, because she had also had a previous heart attack, she was not a candidate for a kidney transplant. And the reason why she's not a candidate for a kidney transplant is because, yes, we can technically give her a new kidney, but giving her a new kidney is not going to fix the rest of her body, Mm. where she's already had a heart attack and she's had an amputation of her leg. And she now presents to the emergency unit at the hospital and is diagnosed with COVID. Mm. Uh, She's extremely short of breath, and a chest X-ray that we would do confirms that it looks like COVID infection in the lungs, and a COVID test comes back and confirms it is COVID, and this patient is now extremely short of breath, and as a hospital team, we need to identify whether this person is a candidate to go into the ICU. So after all our assessments, and we usually do a team-based approach, we do what we call shared decision-making, where at least two or three other consultants would confirm that the patient is not a candidate for the ICU, not a candidate for dialysis, and not a candidate to go onto a ventilator. And her prognosis is therefore deemed to be poor. Now, I don't know whether she's going to survive this COVID episode. But what I do know is is that we aren't able to provide maximal care in terms of a ventilator in the ICU or dialysis for this patient. Mm. So that's a very good patient who can be referred for palliative care. And... I would have preferred if she was referred to me before she developed COVID because we knew she had renal failure and needed dialysis. So if she was referred early, it would have given myself and the palliative care team time to meet the patient, to build a relationship, and to also understand what that person's, so the person's 
role is within their family, how many family members they have, how old their kids are, what job they have, what do they do they have support structures? Where do they live? Are they living in a shack or are they living actually in a house? And then trying to understand that person's situation in order to make a plan for the future. And generally for palliative care, we do need time because as I mentioned, uh, we're not giving a prescription. We're actually giving a, a number of interventions that takes time. But we haven't had that opportunity and now she's there with acute severe pneumonia and she's short of breath and we now need to contact her family. And unfortunately it's COVID so the family can't come into the ward. And we're left with a situation that we can't see the patient's family but the patient's family can't see her either because they can't come in the ward. So what we've done is, is that as part of our palliative care practice is that that patient, we've got Wi-Fi in our ward and we are able to do a actual video link uh, WhatsApp phone call. And what we would do is, is, first of all, ensure that the patient and the family understands exactly what's wrong with the patient, that she's got a COVID pneumonia and that there is a great possibility that she could actually die from this infection and this admission to hospital. And that is extremely difficult to say over the phone. But the public are so aware of COVID that their concern is that they actually didn't want to bring her to hospital because they were afraid that she would be admitted to the COVID ward and then they would never get to see her again and she's going to die at hospital. Yeah. So with COVID, there's an enormous amount of knowledge out there. People understand that this is a very deadly condition. So that's made it a lot more easier for us to have these conversations because often families would say, yes, no, we, we, we heard about it on the TV, we heard on the radio. And that knowledge has made it much easier for us to have these difficult conversations telephonically. But also what's been easy for us is, is to actually allow that patient to then see their family over the phone and actually be able to have much of the information and to be able to deal with it. We've been very blessed in that we, we have a palliative care program at Victoria Hospital and we've been able to translate our training over the years into providing the service uh, to probably close to 80 to 90% of our patients in the hospital who have had COVID. So that patient, unfortunately, I can't save her, I can't fix her condition, but I can definitely provide her with that initial treatment plan and then making sure that she still gets every single treatment that's required for COVID. Uh, we don't withhold treatment, but we also add treatment. So if I can't put on a ventilator and she's extremely short of breath, there are specific treatments for shortness of breath, which many, many, many doctors don't know about. They don't know about breathing exercises. They don't know about holding a patient's hand to reduce their anxiety. They don't know about the use of mist morphine uh, to actually reduce uh, dyspnea or shortness of breath and the use of uh, 
anxiolytic agents or drugs that actually calm you down like lorazepam uh, and the benzodiazepines or there's definitely a lot more that we can offer that patient and my worst thing that i ever hear doctors say to patients is i'm sorry but there's no more that we can do for you mm. now if a patient comes to the doctor who's like that last person who's going to be able to help them how devastating can it be when that person that you've just put all your hope in actually turns around and says to you, sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. That for me is a statement I'd like to remove from every doctor's vocabulary. We must offer patients hope and palliative care does that. Not only do we offer patients dignity, but we also offer them hope in their situation. And by the way, this young lady actually who's 40, she actually made it through hospital. Uh, she got through hospital, she managed to survive COVID, and uh, she managed to spend more time with the family. So I don't know who's going to live and who's going to die. Mm. But our job is to ensure that as a doctor, as a healthcare practitioner, we are able to provide that patient with the best possible care available with the resources we have available. It's such a powerful story. And it lead me on to my next set of questions around COVID. COVID has, which is the theme for this podcast season, COVID has impacted our society in so many ways. What has the impact been then on palliative care? What you, you sketched earlier, you know, about palliative care is taking the time out and, and making that physical contact, which you described so beautifully about the doctor holding the, the patient's hand back in the day, you know, and, and now as well about, holding a patient's hand to, to calm their breathing. Some of those things might not be appropriate if somebody is COVID positive. Involving family members, as you sketch now, you know, again, that, that's very challenging. And it's, it's insightful to hear the use of technology to try and bridge that gap. And then a, a further challenge is how, in which, which fortunately wasn't the case now, but COVID could expedite the life expectancy of people that are usually terminal, meaning that the time lapse from uh, that would ordinarily have been there is much shorter. So your time for intervention is much shorter. And then, and then lastly, could you perhaps touch on what the societal impact of a lockdown and a redistribution of services had on palliative care services in general? Was palliative care services seen as non-essential, uh, especially early on sort of March, April, 2020? We have a palliative care community. Uh, Abundant Life is integrally involved in uh, the PALPRAC, which is the Palliative Care Practitioners Association. Uh, we also belong and we work together with, currently in the Western Cape, there is the Palliative Care Task Team of the Western Cape Government because we have been busy for the last three years to try and actually roll palliative care out in the Western Cape. And it's interesting because palliative care actually came to the fore during COVID. We, for the first time in many, many, since I can remember being involved in palliative care, for the first time, people wanted to know what did the palliative care doctors think about? How are we going to deal with COVID? And we became as important 
as the critical care specialist. And the critical care specialist needed to consult us to ask, how are we going to deal with all these patients that we as critical care specialists are not going to be able to admit into our ICU? And even if we put them in the ICU, and we've now got them on a ventilator. What are we going to do and how are we going to do things if after five days or 10 days, we have now decided that we can't continue ventilating this patient because of all the issues around COVID-19. And we've seen it all over the world, you know, where the number of patients has just purely outstripped the available resources and available beds um, for managing COVID patients. Suddenly, palliative care became important and everybody was asking the question, how are we going to have all these difficult conversations with all these many, many people? Who's going to do it? And we were consulted and as a palliative care uh, fraternity, we actually developed uh, a number of, uh, we developed a, a COVID-19 uh, palliative care uh, document to assist doctors. And in fact, in the standard protocols of many of the COVID management protocols, palliative care is right there uh, and has been included in the management of COVID. Almost Intuitively, I wish palliative care was included in the management of every condition. That's going to be there in a few years' time, hopefully, where COVID can result in your death, so therefore you need a palliative care plan. So too can heart failure, kidney failure, pneumonia, TB, HIV, and so there needs to be a palliative care plan for every single one of those conditions. So that was a huge positive in terms of COVID's impact on palliative care. Unfortunately, on the opposite side, the issue around isolation and, you know, PPE and ensuring social distancing, uh, that really had an enormous negative impact. And unfortunately, we are still going to see those effects of patients not being able to see their loved ones, uh, not being able to say goodbye, not being able to be at the funeral because the patient died and I was in isolation and I couldn't attend the funeral of my mother. And the impact of that is going to be complicated grief and uh, complicated bereavement. And we, are still going to see the psychological impact of that on our society. So that has made our job in palliative care and specifically at Abundant Life. In fact, uh, our coordinator, Sister Elizabeth Patu, is over 60, and she was deemed an extremely high-risk uh, member of staff. And essentially, she wasn't allowed in the hospital for, for she's still not allowed in the hospital. And so we've been running palliative care at Victoria Hospital through Abundant Life almost virtually. But what it has shown us is that it's amazing what one can do with virtual medicine. Mm -hmm. 
it is absolutely incredible to see how we've been able to still see over 500 patients last year um, for palliative care. But within the ward, I had you know, made it my prerogative to ensure that every patient's family got a phone call, that every patient, uh, we organized Wi-Fi in our wards, that families are able to remain in contact. Uh, you weren't able to bring food into the hospital. You weren't able to visit the patient, but you definitely could bring a cell phone with a charger uh, because that communication line had to be kept open. I think with the same amount of challenges globally, uh, all of us were able to actually provide, at least at my hospital, we definitely aim to provide a palliative care service that was equal to any other in the world uh, under the same constraints. So we, we aim for excellence and, and that's how COVID had impacted on, on us. You mentioned already that the, the role that technology and digital avenues can play to improve palliative care and assist, especially now in COVID. What are some of the other areas that other solutions that was created during COVID, um, but looking beyond to improve palliative care? So what I'd like to say is that probably one of the greatest things that happened in our facility was the fact that every single doctor suddenly became able and had to start communicating with families. Mm. Now, what happens when it's visiting hours in a hospital? You go Where to do the, the doctors go, Adil? Go to the tea room and you close the door. Right. <laughs> the moment the family arrives at the hospital, the doctors disappear. Now, I don't know why that is. So, Adil, why, why do the doctors run away? It's, it's the difficult conversations at, at 7 p.m. in the evening after a long call. And, and that's a major problem. Yeah. You know, families come to the hospital, they take off work, they travel to the hospital, and they're hoping to see someone who's going to give them information about their family member. Yeah. And our healthcare system is built on exactly the opposite. Yeah. The moment family pitch up at the hospital, the doctors are nowhere to be seen. And in this pandemic, the doctors were forced to phone the family. Yeah. Now, if doctors can continue that going forward, that would be an amazing change in the healthcare system. Absolutely incredible. But I can tell you now, having watched what's going on, not even out of pandemic of COVID, but on the fringes, already that practice has already reduced significantly. So that is a very cheap intervention. It in fact is gonna cost us almost nothing, but doctors learning to pick up the phone and phone a family member and actually explain to them what's going on. And what I've been practicing is actually having the phone on speakerphone at the patient's bedside. And when having the conversation with the patient, you actually bring the family into that conversation via that WhatsApp conversation. And then what's great about it is that the patient hears it, but the family member hears exactly what you told the patient. 
because what often happens when we communicate with patients is, is that, you know, I say to a 70 year old man, you know, uncle, uh, you have actually got uh, end stage cardiac failure. And then he goes home and his wife says to him, what did the doctor say today? And he says to his wife, no, man, the doctor said I got a little a touch of heart failure. <laughs> you remember, you, you, you know that. And so the wife thinks that uncle is actually her husband's fine. Yeah. You know, he's got a touch of heart failure. The doctors discharged him. They didn't phone her to tell her how severe things are. Yeah. And so next week, when he's again in pulmonary edema, mm. he ends up coming to hospital again. And, and then his wife is thinking, that's a terrible hospital. They're mm. doing a bad job. Mm. Meanwhile, we just didn't communicate. Mm. So if we continue with great communication as we did during COVID, I think we're going to see a improvement in healthcare and in palliative care in South Africa. The other thing to look forward to is the mere fact that palliative care has actually been elevated uh, into the uh, public domain as well as into the medical domain. And, you know, I would ask myself, uh, you know, in the last 10 years, nobody's been phoning me up and sending me an email to say, hey, would you like to do a podcast? I mean, I do. Why would you want to do a podcast with Dr. Kibito who's doing palliative care? <laughs> Nobody ever wanted to do that. So everything's coming, moving in a positive direction. And I do believe that uh, the public is actually being educated. And the public is going to drive the healthcare system to change. How can we continue that essence, though? It's very beautiful that it's been elevated, there is an upward trajectory, but as you mentioned, there are already some people on the fringes that want to go back to the status quo. How can we continue with that momentum for healthcare workers themselves and for the public? And I put it to you that should healthcare workers, should all healthcare workers get more training on palliative care? I mean, if I think back to my undergrad time, we didn't have much palliative care exposure you know, skills. It was always part of, of other section of other modules, but we didn't have a strong focus, for example. And then for the public, what are ways that they can get involved? What are ways that they can educate themselves and, and bring the, the, the loved ones for palliative care services? The good news is, is that the uh, Provincial Palliative Care Task Team has actually already been working on this. And, and in the last three years, one of our goals has been 100% uh, palliative care awareness of of staff within the public health care system. That's the awareness campaign. The other campaign is, is to train 30% of staff in basic palliative care. And it's a process, you know, and unfortunately COVID just stopped our process. So in, in 2019, we actually trained 160 people within the, the Western Cape, attended and went on the basic palliative care course. So we are training people. We are definitely highlighting it. And that's what we have been doing. So our aim was that to train 30% of healthcare workers in three years, to raise palliative care awareness to 100% in three years, 
I think we, in one sense, the training has been put on hold because of COVID, but the awareness because of COVID has definitely increased tremendously. That's a very positive thing. And the other thing is, is that we, we, we definitely need to see palliative care in every single healthcare facility. You know, we need a champion, a palliative care champion in every single healthcare facility. Um, whether it be a small facility or whether it be a Grudeskir, Tigerberg, but there needs to be that champion. And we have done extremely well over the last few years in actually developing champions within facilities. But here's the biggest thing that we need in the healthcare system. Currently, palliative care is being delivered for free. Government is not paying for it. And we are fundraising and we are running these services basically without funding. Now, can you imagine 100% of our patient population has the potential to have this condition? It's called death. <laughs> and we're spending 0% of our money on a 100% possibility. <laughs> Very important is that death is only an event. Life is everything up until that event. So don't forever think that we're spending money on death. Mm. We are actually spending money and I'm asking people to consider spending money on quality of life because it's life that requires the care. Death is only just a, a, a moment in time. And if we can convince people that, you know, that young lady was 40 who actually had COVID and didn't die. Imagine we didn't provide her with that great care. She may have died, but the fact is that she actually lived. And it's the fact that we are looking after those people who are living and have the potential to die. That's very important. So we do need government to put their money where their mouth is. But more importantly, we do need the public to get involved. We need the public to talk about these things. We need to be elevated in all media aspects. You know, I, I look at the, the conversations and all the interviews on TV about COVID. Did you ever see anybody talking about palliative care during the COVID? They talk about the vaccine, they talk about the different trials and treatments, but they're not focusing on the care. And that's where we've got, so, we're going to have a third wave, Adil. We can promise ourselves we're going to have a third wave. Italy's already in the third wave. Mm. So what are we going to do differently? How are we going to do palliative care differently in the third wave? And that's something that you, as a uh, podcaster, you're going to have to help us there. You need to get us into the limelight. You need to be able to say that we need to do this differently. Um, because guys like me, people are tired of hearing the same voices. <laughs> we need new voices out there. We can absolutely try. For what is worth, your voice is not tiring at all. It's extremely inspirational. I think the work that you are doing to bring the dignity back to medicine is applaudable. 
I hope that the healthcare worker that's listening is inspired to learn more about palliative care. I, I wanted to leave you with a, a phrase that I picked up early in my undergrad career. I don't actually know where it's from. It says that as a healthcare worker, as a doctor, you should really cure. You should sometimes treat, but you should always care. And that stuck with me throughout my career that, you know, as, as health professionals, we don't, we, we, we're not superheroes, you know, we're not gods. We're not there to remove suffering always. But if we are, if we don't lose focus with the core tenets of our profession, which is to care and do no harm, then I think we're on the right course. And, and absolutely people like you are inspiring. And uh, thank you very much for, the, for your time. And I hope that, that many listeners will be inspired and, and be contributing to you to abundant life uh, abundantly. Thank you very much, Adil. And thanks for, for giving me the opportunity to share with your listeners.